Welcome, friends. You found the Out of the Ordinary podcast. I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And I'm Christy Purifoy. And this is the place where we believe that the very best stories grow out of the soil of ordinary life. A few of my favorite ordinary things are hitting snooze on the alarm clock, hot coffee with heavy cream, and a new local cafe with great writing spots. Lisa Joe, I love wrapping up in a cozy cardigan, going for long walks on cold afternoons, and warming up around a real fire. All right, friends, here's today's conversation. Get comfy. Here we go. To write is to reveal your mind at work. There is no nakedness like that nakedness. Christy, are you ready to get naked today? Oh, my word. (laughs) (laughs) That's a quote from Pat Schneider's amazing book called Writing Alone and with Others. And I was thinking about that quote today before we got started telling stories, because when you tell stories, you are revealing parts of yourself to other people, like intimate parts of yourself. And that's what we do on this podcast. We always want to remind ourselves and our listeners is we tell stories in order for you to learn things about yourselves as we learn about ourselves. We are naked storytellers. We are, aren't we? Oh my goodness. Is that our new tagline, Lisa Joe? Okay, Lisa Joe. So what story are you going to tell today? Today, I'm going to tell a story about the time I peed in my front yard. Oh, Okay. I don't know that story. Okay. Lisa Joe. today I'm going to tell a story about two houses, both of them named for cows. <laughs> cows, like cattle. Yes. Cows. <laughs> moo. <laughs> you said moo. So, so far we have nakedness and cows and peeing in the front yard. It's going to be a great episode. You guys, we <laughs> hope every time you tune in here, we'll have a story teaser that will make you want to keep listening. And The reason why is that this week, we really want to talk about home. We want to talk about the places that form us more than any other, that get up in our blood and our identity. And I bet if you're listening that right now, you could remember the name of the street of the house where you grew up, your most formative house. Christy, what's yours? That's right. I can't believe you introduced my story with that question, because that is exactly (laughs) what my story is about. So. I grew up in a little house in Texas, in College Station, Texas, on a street named Jersey Street. And it was called Jersey Street because there was a golf course across the street. And next to that golf course, there was a field. And that field for many decades had been the home to a herd of Jersey cows And I can remember actually being quite young and driving by that field and still seeing a few of those cows there. But that was so long ago. And even before we ended up leaving that house on Jersey Street, the the cows were long gone. But the name persisted until... (laughs) So the name did not last much longer than the cows. This is what happened. So I I lived in College Station, Texas, um, the home of Texas A&M University. But at that time, my local community began an initiative to encourage our president, so at this time, President Bush Sr., the first, his time in office was ending. In our community, he had ties with Texas, and they wanted to encourage him to locate his presidential library in College Station. 
I can remember actually, I hope they won't be embarrassed if I say this. I don't think they will be. I can remember overhearing the conversation of my parents at this time who were saying, oh my goodness, why is our community doing this? There is no way that the president will locate his library in College Station. He has ties with Houston, which is a much bigger, more impressive city. Of course, he will put his presidential library in Houston. But then Lisa Joe, in their effort to encourage our president to bring the library to College Station, the community decided to change the name of our street. Oh, wow. So Jersey Street would now no longer be Jersey Street. The cows would be completely forgotten, <laughs> and the street would be renamed George Bush Drive. No way. And I Googled it. As you were talking, Uh and here's the picture, the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum in College Station, Texas. Look at that. Guess what? No cows, not a cow in sight. (laughs) (laughs) They were successful, but there was this period where our street name, where I lived as a child, had been changed to the name of our president, but the adults I was overhearing at that time were still convinced that the library would not come. And so there was this sense that, oh my goodness, they took away our street name. Yes, they honored our president, but they did it. They're not going to get what they want. It's not going to bring the results they want, but we're going to have to live with this new street name. And it's a really odd thing, I have to tell you. And it was even for me as a kid to not have moved, to still be in the house we'd lived in for years and years. And all of a sudden, for my address to be different, to have to get used to saying... interesting. Right? I no longer said such and such Jersey Street. You were supposed to say George Bush Drive. It was very, very strange. So that was my childhood home. But it's only been recently that I realized something. So often I am more aware of the... I think the differences between my home now and my childhood home, my life now in Pennsylvania, and my childhood in Texas, Um, I have shared in this podcast before about how I longed to leave Texas, how I felt like I was searching for home somewhere else. I didn't feel like I belonged in Texas. Um, But it only recently occurred to me that I live in a house built by a farmer who was famous for his Guernsey cattle. Oh, no way. Yes. Yes. And so famous, he was actually one of the very first, maybe even the first farmer in the U.S. to bring over that breed of cattle from the Isle of Guernsey um, in, you know, outside of England and introduce them, these Guernsey cattle to this country and to farms in this country. And so it's an important enough part of our local history that um, a nearby street is named Guernsey. And many people in our area don't know, you know, why is it called that? Um, There aren't Guernsey cattle on that street any longer. But I know every time I'm on it, it's called Guernsey because of the farmer who built the house where I live and his work bringing these cattle. I mean, can you imagine bringing cattle across the ocean in like 1880? That's crazy. Crazy. But Lisa Joe, I only (laughs) realized this recently. I grew up in a little house in Texas on a street named for the cattle that were roaming across the street, these Jersey cattle. I now live in a house known for its connection with Guernsey cattle. And while I don't think there's anything super meaningful about the fact that both houses are named for cows, to me, it is a sign of connection. It is a sign of continuity that I have to reckon with. I think I have become too too good at seeing what I've left behind at what 
doesn't persist through my childhood. And actually realizing that about these houses and being named for cattle has me searching back to try to see more of those connections. Because as you said at the beginning, our childhood homes form us. They do. They shape us. And you might leave as I left, but you never really leave, do you? Right. And I think it's so interesting that your street name changed like that. So when the library was finally built, mm-hmm. it was it's located on the street you grew up in? Like, is it a very well, long street? Like, it's hard. It's My brain street. is struggling to imagine that. I know. <laughs> It is a long, big sort of main street that is quite close to the university campus. So it made sense as a choice to to honor the president. I can't actually remember at this point if the library is directly on the street or not, but it made sense. We grew up in this little house across from campus that was on a, a big street. That's yeah. so, it's funny, the street name changing actually reminds me of an episode in Gilmore Girls, which you probably haven't watched. I, how are we friends? But anyway, <laughs> anybody listening will remember, they're going to know what I'm referencing because because Lorelai owns this inn called the Dragonfly Inn, and mm-hmm. it's located on 3rd Street. And she gets very excited because this little town that's so passionate about their history is doing this historical study on what the original names of streets were okay. way back when, like when the town was first founded. And she's like, oh, it's so romantic. Like, I can't wait to find out what was it? You know, was it like Parchment Alleyway? Was it like, you know, oh, no. Sir Lancelot Lane? Like, what was our street name? And then when she discovers what it is, it used to be called Soars and Boils Alley. <laughs> <laughs> she's That's so terrible. horrified and wants to be able to switch back to third street which is just a very nice innocuous and she's like what will i do about tourists that nobody wants to come to stores and boils alley <laughs> and then of course she famously loses her temper with the town planner and he refuses to let her go back to third and she comes back to the staff at the end and they're all like what, what how did it go how did it go did he agree to go back to third and she's like nope i lost my temper Soars and boils alley it is <laughs> Oh, that's funny that even in a TV show, there's conversation about the street name. You know, the street names matter. I've actually looked at houses when Pete and I were looking for places to live and told him, oh, no, that could not be my address. Like, I can't can't be on that street. (laughs) I don't know why I'm so crazy. But names matter to me so much. And so when you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I've moved around a lot in a lot of different houses. And Interestingly enough, one of my first formative homes that I remember was actually in the States because while I was born in South Africa, when I was about three, we moved to, ironically, Pennsylvania for three years because my father was getting his Master's of Divinity and he worked at CHOP, Children's Hospital of of Philadelphia. Um, He's a doctor, a medical doctor, but he was getting his seminary degree at the same time. And so we rented, I remember my parents talking about how that first year we were in the States, we lived in 13 different places. Can you believe that? (gasps) Yeah, we moved 13 times because I think they were trying to figure out what they could afford. And some people were loaning us a room in their house and we kept moving until we finally lived in this house. And it's funny, the things your childhood memory holds on to. I remember that house a lot like it was kind of a house out of what I would think of as an American movie house. You know, your real New Englandy type house, big, old, large wraparound porch, many floors, wooden banisters, shutters. It was a corner yard. And I remember there would be Fourth of July parades in our small town when you were on the outskirts of Philadelphia and the parade would come right by our corner. So people would always 
stand and gather there. And I remember my dad saying, oh, this is so America. You know, this is so America. <laughs> but I also remember my mom tells the story in horror. She used to tell it. So it's one of those memories that's not actually a memory. It's I've heard the story so many times. It's become a memory for me. Mm. But, you know, we had moved from South Africa. I was born in Zululand and at the time was a young baby who was potty training and my mom said because it was so hot I always just ran around in diapers and then if anyone needed to go to the bathroom we all the kids did the same thing you just popped a squat like under a tree somewhere it was like no big (laughs) deal it was like part of potty training too but it became habit for me at like three four not to come back into the house but just to like go somewhere And my mom tells a story about how one afternoon she overheard these two very proper Philadelphia ladies who were out in the, you know, sitting out on their lawn, sipping probably iced tea. And I did what I always do. You know, I took a little whiz right there in the front yard. And my mom says she overheard one of the ladies saying to the other one, oh, yeah, you can tell she's from Africa. mom was so mortified and she was like you will come in the house from now on (laughs) like looking back I want to be like it has nothing to do with being from Africa it has to do with being four years old (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) but it's such a formative memory to do with that house and that house imprinted on me in such a big way but like literally have a scar on one of the fingers on my right hand because and I remember it like it was yesterday. It's one of those first, one of my first true memories is this occurrence. My brother and I were playing in the front yard of this big old house. And I think we lived on the second floor. I don't even think we had the mm. whole house. I think we just rented a floor in the house. And he was playing and wanted to go inside And I walked him to the door and he went into the house and I told him, close the door, Josh, because the door, of course, opens in and he needed to close it from his side. And you know what those houses are like. It was a house a lot like Maplehurst with a big, heavy, wooden front door. And I remember standing there with my hand pressed up against the side of the wall to like yell into the house after him, like, come back, close the door. And he just took that door and (gasps) flung it closed, but my hand was still there right in the latch of the door. And that solid oak door slammed closed on my finger like a like a trap, you know, like mm. a trap on an animal. And I couldn't get it out. I couldn't open the door. And I just remember screaming and screaming. And my dad had to come running down. And when he pulled the door open, it ripped off my entire nail, like out of my oh. nail bed and like, oh, like the top skin of my finger. Oh, it's so awful. It was so terrible. Wow. And we had to go to the hospital and had to have it stitched up and I still have the scar and the finger is still crooked because of that incident. And I remember my little brother at the vending machine getting like, I don't know, animal crackers or something and offering it to me like with his big frightened (laughs) eyes because of what he had done. And I remember, you know, as a child, language is still fluid and I had grown up in Zululand and I spoke Zulu and English back and forth as a child when I was learning early vocab. And I, my dad tells the story about how I said when I was waiting and my, I was nervous and said, I don't want to get in Jova. And 
the doctor said, what's an in the doctor, the American doctor asked my father, what's she afraid of? What's in Jova? And he, my dad said, it's an injection, a shot. She doesn't, she's afraid she's going to get a shot. And I, my dad says, I said to him, what's a, what's an injection? What's he talking about? And he was oh. like, it's in Jova. And I was like, am I getting in Jova? I don't want one. <laughs> uh, but you know, the homes we grow up in, they really do mark our mm-hmm. souls the way that Front door mm-hmm. marked my body, right? Mm-hmm. I remember when we moved back from the States, back to South Africa, we lived on a street called Selikats Causeway. And it's so interesting because my father, you know, we'd come from Zululand, then we lived in Philadelphia for, you know, just outside Philadelphia for three years, and then back in South Africa. But my father has always had this deep passion and fascination with the Zulu nation, Shaka Zulu in particular. My dad speaks Zulu and just like a deep love for the Zulu people and for their story. And famously, Shaka Zulu had an admiral in his army. We, The Zulu word is his, his impi. In his impis, he had an admiral and his name was Mzelikazi, is the name of the chief. And so, this street is named after this Zulu chief. And there we were, like moving into this little house on Selicott's Causeway. And it was back in the day before kids, you know, had to be so careful about letting them roam the neighborhood. I wonder if it was the same for you. I mean, we would get on our bikes and just be gone, like from early Mm -hmm. morning on Saturday until late evening. We would just be out on our bikes, biking all over the neighborhood. And it was just mm-hmm. a completely normal part of my childhood to own those streets like they were ours. Yeah, I was thinking how it's not only the names of the streets that mark us or mark our memories, but the shape of the streets. And especially for me, the shape of the interior of the house, the mm. hallways and bedrooms. I mean, you remember that door that marked you, also the backyard. So I don't know if this is true for you. I'm curious to hear, but I still return to childhood homes in my dreams. So I will wake really? up and know that, oh, that dream, I was in the Jersey Street house or I was in that space. And it's so strange to me that places that during the day, during my waking hours, I, I seldom think about. Yeah. At night, my brain goes back there. And you know whether it's a good dream or a nightmare, it, it will have nothing to do with the house. It's not like in my dream, I'm a little kid again. No, I'm just in that place again. Mm. And maybe my parents are there too, but I'm in those spaces. I'm in those hallways and those bedrooms, and I recognize them. If I remember the dream, I recognize, oh, I was back in that house. Even if the dream itself is not a not a dream about childhood or about that house, but it's the space that is so imprinted on me, I guess, that it can hold my my dreams. I, To be honest, I think I have more dreams where I'm in a childhood home than I do dreams where I'm in my current home. I don't think I'm in this house in my dreams. I think I'm always really? in Jersey Street. Really? That is yeah. fascinating. I think for me, Home, like the actual house itself, has felt very transient. I have Mm. often moved. We've moved a lot. Mm. I've lived overseas quite a lot, too. And so, for me, it's often been not the house, per se, that I dream about, but what happened in certain places, you know, in ways that my body has carried either the joy or the scars from that place. I think there's Mm. something so formative about the places where we grew up, the friends that we knew, what the neighbors were like, how we've loved and had first kisses in driveways. Mm -hmm. You know, I talked about that in our favorite words episode. I remember that driveway that we lived after we were on the Selicott's Causeway house. 
we moved. And it's funny, the dreams of our mothers, you know, what did my mom want out of a house? Because the houses you and I grew up in, they were our moms, right? Like what they were hoping for out of a house. And I'd be curious to hear what your mom hoped for. My mom, (laughs) that's so funny. I wish I could talk to her about this and ask her why this is what she wanted. But she always talked to my dad about how what she wanted was a house where the kitchen flowed into the living space, Mm. which flowed out the door to the backyard and the swimming pool. Mm. And growing up in South Africa, most houses had pools because there's no, there was no air conditioning. It was hot all year. And so a pool was pretty standard. Um, And she just somehow always talked about that flow. Like she Mm. wanted to be able to be in the kitchen and see through the living room and the kids are outside in the yard and there's the pool. And we bought a house like that after the Selicott's Causeway house, which was a really tiny little shoebox home. Um, The next house we had, and it wasn't a huge house either. It was a very modest house, but it happened to have that flow. The Mm. rooms were small, but it had that flow. And that like met this deep need for her Mm. that I wish I could ask her where it came from because it's interesting to know what shaped our mothers Mm -hmm. because I wonder if it's shaped me when I think about my house and being able to have, you know, we live in a house now that's an open floor plan. And I've always wanted that too, like the sense of like the space that moves. And I I guess I wonder now if it's somehow inherited from her. Right. You know, I I don't know from my own mom or my parents what they wanted or what they were looking for, but I do know what I observed, which was how they cared for a place. So I can remember moving into very vivid memories of moving into the Jersey Street house and how, in my memory at least, it felt like almost immediately, and it probably was, my parents were painting and choosing wallpaper. I remember them putting up the wallpaper in our little dining nook. I I remember vividly, (laughs) I think now as an adult, I know that it's called chair rail molding. It's like a bit of wooden molding that goes sort of halfway up the wall. And I remember them putting up that molding. And then I think maybe wallpapering above it and painting below it or Maybe it was vice versa. But of course, as a kid, you don't understand such things. You don't know that this is a style. I just remember thinking, oh, they're putting up a piece of wood in the middle of the wall. How interesting. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember vividly just the care. And I think even then I knew they weren't doing this because anyone else was expecting it of them. They weren't doing this because, well, we just had so much money. So, of course, we would move into a place and fix it all up. I knew even then, no, that is not the case. My parents are very careful with limited funds. I think what I, I knew, even as a child, is that home matters. And one of the most important ways that I understood that home mattered was that I saw both of my parents diving into home projects to fix up the house and to make it our own. I, Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you know me, you know what I write about, you know how I live. I mean, how formative has that been for me? And it wasn't just my mom. It was both of my parents um, with limited funds, limited time, yet really prioritizing the look and comfort of our house. And then, this is the other thing that has been incredibly formative, is that they were always having other people in our home. So that Mm. Jersey Street house, I can look back and recognize that it was very small. (laughs) And my parents had four children. And yet, we often had um, a college student living with us. We always had people in our home, no matter that the house was, was so, so tiny. So that too, I think, has been something woven into me in my understanding of home. What Mm. is home? And it isn't right or wrong. It's just personally, what, what makes a home, what makes a house feel like a home to me? It is when it is full of people 
And I say that as an introvert, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is maybe not my natural (laughs) inclination. And yet home feels like home when it is crowded, full of people, shared, when it is not perfect or fancy, but when it is cared for. All of these things were things I absorbed from my parents on Jersey Street. I love that. I love that you talk about the limits of your home. Mm -hmm. Listeners, we're so looking forward to this conversation because we're actually at the very beginning of what will end up being a longer series of stories taking us into the Lent season. And we really think it starts here with homes that define our identity. And next week, we'll talk about limits in our homes. How do we deal with those kind of limits? What are the ways we're limited in our homes? But then how do those limits open up new opportunities for us? And we'll, the following week, as we start to head into Lent, we'll talk about brokenness in our homes. Mm -hmm. But today is really revisiting these childhood memories because they are the foundation for a lot of these stories going forward. And, you know, I think about my my parents did not have a real design flair. I think they wanted to, but they didn't really know what they were doing. And they also, my childhood is really marked a lot by my father trying to get out of debt and working all the time. And then my mother's sickness. And those two things work against you making beautiful spaces in your house. But I have this vivid memory when I was 16 in the Charles Barrett house with the flow from the kitchen to the living room to the pool. I remember my mom talking to me about wanting to make over my bedroom because Mm -hmm. I was now a teenager. And what did I want in my room? And we had picked out, we'd only begun the process. And the first thing we had done, and I don't know if this was the time period, you know, it's like very early, like late 80s, very early 90s. We had picked out this border wallpaper. Yes. Does this sound, Chrissy's yes. nodding her head. Was that a thing <laughs> everywhere? And we were going to put up this border. We were going to paint the room and we we're going to put this border up. And the border was these delicate little pink flowers with mm-hmm. little green leaves. It's very feminine, uh. not cutesy, not childish, but beautiful, mm-hmm. just uh, delicate and beautiful. And we had bought this roll of wallpaper and our plan was to put it up. But I remember just a few weeks later, we were gathered at the home of dear friends of ours. And I remember their house. They had six kids at a huge house in a giant backyard. And they hosted our church youth group every Friday night is where we would meet. We'd gather there. It was a blast. And um, we'd sing. We'd flirt. (laughs) We'd have crushes (laughs) on one another. We did life together. And there was a Friday night just a few weeks later where my father I remember looking into one of the rooms and wondering why my dad was crying. He was Mm. talking to the dad at that house. We called him Uncle Colin in South Africa. We always address people by aunt or uncle, whether we're related or not. And later in the car, he would break the news to me and my brother that my mom had been diagnosed with leukemia. And so we never made that bedroom together, she and Mm. I. We never painted it. We never put up the wallpaper it sat in a in a closet. And what's funny to me is that somehow it never got thrown out. I just always mm. had it. Mm. And it was something she would sometimes talk about in hospital, like, I can't wait to get home and decorate your room with you. But it never happened. And she ended up passing away. And my father, <laughs> while I was overseas, ended up with a quickie remarriage. And it's part of what we'll unpack a little bit when we go into our stories about the brokenness in our homes. But one of the interesting things is when I came back from overseas and had a new mother and a new house. My father had gotten rid of the house that my mom loved. And uh, the thing he had done, though, that was so 
tender and beautiful that recognized my loss. And he had done a lot of things wrong. So like this one thing was very meaningful. There was a small cottage on the property behind the main house, this new house my dad had bought with his new wife. And they'd moved into while I was still overseas at the time. And I came home as a 20-year-old to this completely new life, essentially. But my dad was excited to show me that there was this small cottage with a little loft up at the top for the bed and a little tiny bathroom and all this privacy and sense of independence. And when he walked me up to the cottage, when we walked in, the very first thing I saw is that my dad had hung that wallpaper that my mom had bought me all around (laughs) the top trim of that small cottage. And there was something about saying, welcome home, you know, here is me seeing you and making home for you in this new place. And so it's why we're talking today about these childhood moments of ours that somehow are arrows pointing us to this Mm -hmm. bigger question of what is home? What does home mean? And how do we find our way there? Lisa Jo, I don't have anything to say. That's just (laughs) perfect. (laughs) Beautiful and heartbreaking. And it reminds me that, yes, this is an unfinished conversation because... We can't just leave our listeners there, right? Like mm. that is, that fulfillment is there, but I think there's a lot more to say. But oh my word, Lisa Joe, there's another story I've never heard before. I'm so <laughs> glad for this podcast. I love that after 20 years, we can still have them. It does feel kind of like when you and I sit down going into the vault of our souls to pull things yeah. out. And it's why yeah. today... It feels like a naked conversation, you know. I read that quote again from the book Writing Alone by Pat Schneider. She says, to write, or in our case, to tell stories, is to reveal your mind at work. There is no nakedness like that nakedness. And then she talks about how to write, or in our case, to tell stories, takes courage. You are a brave person just to attempt it. And I think Mm -hmm. for everybody listening who's ever shared one of their stories with somebody else. You are a brave person mm-hmm. just to attempt it. That's right. I think, yes, maybe we'll we'll finish here with this thought, which is some of these stories are, it would be easier to just leave them deeply buried. I could imagine that it would be easier for you to leave the wallpaper story far, far behind. And so why do we do it? Why do we go back? Why do so many of our story-driven podcasts have us returning to memories, returning to childhood experiences. And I think it is because we, as hard as it can be sometimes to take that close look at things that that are hard or things that are beautiful, but also terrible, you know, the whole mix of life, as hard as that can be, we, every time we find treasure there, every time we find beautiful continuity between our past and our present, in a way that reminds me, even if it's something silly, like two houses named for cattle, essentially, (laughs) even if it's something so silly like that, it reminds me, oh my goodness, things that feel random and disconnected and chaotic are not. They never Mm. are. They never are because we are held um, in this story being written by this perfect storyteller who loves us. And we can see his fingerprints, I believe, and even these tiny, tiny details. And so that's why we go back. That's why we tell these stories. And that's why I would encourage our listeners to journey back as well, perhaps after turning off this podcast, to think, what do you remember about your childhood home? And I ask that knowing that it might uncover some things that 
have to be dealt with, that have to be taken to a counselor, have to be taken to a spouse or a friend or a pastor. We would never say you have to carry those things alone. How beautiful that you and I, Lisa Joe, like you're not just sitting alone, telling these, you know, remembering, dwelling on these memories, but you're sharing them with me and I can feel the weight of the emotion with you, which I hope helps somehow. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so listeners, this is worthwhile, this remembering, this storytelling. Maybe you do it with your children or your grandchildren, or you do it in your journal. Do it in your journal but do it. Um, gosh, Lisa Joe, I never expected that really this is what we would be doing in this podcast when we started, but consistently, I think it's what we do the most. And it it's so rich. It's so good. Mm. But it's not always easy. It's not easy. It's better done with friends yes. over tea. Yes. <laughs> Here's to doing more of it next week. Absolutely. Next week. If you enjoyed today's conversation, won't you take a moment right now, open up that podcast app and look for the subscribe button right next to our podcast profile image. And we think this podcast is best enjoyed with friends. So tell a friend, click share episode in your podcast app and send a friend our link. 